Father Gregory Pine, welcome to Power and Witness podcast and did a show with you. I'd like to hear a little bit about your backstory, your own vocational journey. How did you wind up with the Dominicans? <laughs> um, being a proud man, I'm always worried that I'm going to talk for too long. So how interested are you in this question? <laughs> we got lots of time. It's, okay. it's a big fat podcast. So <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> no rules. <laughs> um, so I grew up in a Catholic family. And uh, my parents met and married in the late 70s in Portland, Oregon. And they made their way back to the East Coast because my, f- my mother's family is from uh, New York, New Jersey. And yeah, like the faith was always very precious to them. And they, and, you know, kind of like instilled that in us. And when I was three, so in 1991, my father, my father, my, my father and mother combined father, uh, my father um, kind of experienced a call to take the family to Medjugorje. So he sold our family home and used the money that ought to have been the down payment on another home uh, to take us to Medjugorje. He's all in. That's right. <laughs> and so we went and it was great. And uh, they were very much convinced by this call to, you know, pray with the heart, pray the Holy Rosary, um, attend daily mass fast on bread and water on Wednesdays and Fridays, read the sacred scriptures, and uh, make a monthly confession. And so that was a big part of our family life growing up. And we always went to public school, but it was like kind of, it was just part of our formation as kids. And so then in 1996, we went back as a family, and then my parents started taking pilgrimages like once or twice or three times a year with folks that would kind of come to the parish or they also had a Catholic bookshop in town that they opened after the first pilgrimage. And so they'd get to know folks through there and invite them to come along with them. And uh, so, yeah, we went as a family a handful of times and each, each visit was an occasion for me of deeper conversion and um, a kind of like renewed desire for, for sanctity, you know, for evangelical life. And, and then in, in high school, just like did normal stuff, you know, played sports and participated in clubs. Uh, and I hadn't really thought too much about vocation. But my sisters went to Franciscan University of Steubenville because my parents with the shop, they were getting books from Steubenville professors and they were thinking, these are great. We should encourage our daughters, our kids to, to make a visit. And so my one sister went, my other sister went, and then I went. So I only applied to the one school. And then my, my freshman year, my sisters encouraged me not to date they said, not that I was like a great dater in my day, but um, they said, you know, f- like some guys will come and they'll meet a great girl. They'll start dating. They might break up, you know, junior year and they'll look around and think, I didn't, I didn't actually make as many friends as I might have because I was spending all my time with this woman who was great, you know, but it didn't work out. So they said, yeah, just make some good friends, lay down a good foundation, and then you can think about those things later. So I said, okay, wise counsel. So I, I made up my mind not to date. And that was the first time where I, where I like was thinking consciously about not dating, or I was thinking consciously about whatever else you would call it. Um, because I think in high school, it was always like, ooh, it's possible, it's not possible, maybe whatever. You know, so it was, it was always percolating. But now my freshman year, it wasn't percolating, and that was just a distinct mentality. Also that year, I went to a lecture by a professor at St. Louis University named Eleanor Stump. She, she spoke about Aquinas on the nature of love. And I found that to be just especially insightful um, and yeah, just wonderful. So she spoke with a clarity and with a precision that got to the heart of the matter and just kind of opened up my own experience to me. What in particular, do you remember in particular maybe what struck you? Um, so she was talking about like different offices of love. So like the universal call is to love, uh, speaking about love as a desire for union with and a desire for the good of the beloved. We typically think of the good of the beloved, but she was also talking about union and saying that the degree of union or the intensity of union is dictated in part by the office of love. Like, you know, what's appropriate for a mother and son and what is appropriate for brother and sister and what is appropriate for friends and what is appropriate for coworkers is dictated in part by the circumstances about, you know, the thing itself. So, um, yeah, I, I found that especially compelling and animating. And that summer uh, I went to Medjugorje, but I had also been working previous to the pilgrimage at my mother's bookshop. Um, 
and she had given me permission to use gift certificates, unredeemed gift certificates from past customers who had passed away. So I was just like redeeming dead people's gift certificates to buy books for myself. And one book that I bought was called The Quiet Light about St. Thomas Aquinas. It was one of these Louis DeWall novels. And um, so after having gone to Medge, I came back to the United States and I was living with my aunt and uncle in Maine as a nanny for their, for their kids, for my cousins. And I read that book about St. Thomas Aquinas and I was like, wow, I want to love the Lord the way that he loved the Lord. Um, because, you know, prior to that, I'd had a variety of desires, you know, like kind of broadly speaking, Christian desires to be devout, you know, to be given to the Lord, um, to do great things, uh, to build up the kingdom, to be perfect in charity, dot, 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 whatever. But I just didn't know how they came together. And But it was his concrete witness, which kind of said, I think this has a claim on my life. And uh, so, yeah, I started visiting the Dominicans in the province that I joined and I entered and then, So you yeah. knew, before you graduated, you knew you were gonna enter? At the age of 19, yeah. Oh, okay. So you never made it to the dating part. Never did. <laughs> yep. Did you make good friends at Steubenville? I did, yeah, yeah. with whom I am still friends. Yeah. So. Played ultimate frisbee? I did, yeah. Were you good at that? You're not, tall. Not <laughs> really, yeah. Yeah, I was, I was okay. Now coming through Medjugorje, he has great emphasis on the rosary and Marian devotion. And you've written, co-authored a book, right, on Thomas and the rosary. Tell us, well, tell us about the book. How did that, what's for some big points in there you like? Sure, yeah. <laughs> as, as is the case with most things that I do, it's not an original idea. It's just something that I said yes to. So I co-authored it with Matt Frad, and he said, I want to take a look at St. Thomas's homilies on the angelic salutations of the Hail Mary, and then this academic sermon called Lux est orta, um, a light is arisen, and uh, just do a little like consecration book on the basis of St. Thomas's writings on the Blessed Virgin Mary. So just work through it chapter by chapter, just thinking about the principal graces, um, the kind of principal mysteries really. Uh, so I would say that the book is apologetic in some sense, like it, it anticipates a person, like a reader who's not wholly convinced as to the place of Marian devotion in the life of the church. But then it's also mystagogical in the sense that it takes you by the hand and it leads you into the mystery. Uh, so just trying to articulate the graces of Our Lady's life in coherent fashion so that she is the mother of God is the highest praise that you can heap upon her because uh, it's, as, it's as intimately as one can participate the divine life. It's as close as one can get to the incarnation. And then the other graces of her life flow from that. So she's mm -hmm. preserved from sin, like she participated in the redemption in peculiar fashion to prepare for the divine maternity. And she is a perpetual virgin as a way by which to signal uh, and to kind of underline the divine maternity. And she is full of grace, right? So as to provide a, a setting for, you know, like a space for, a welcome reception for the divine maternity. And she is assumed into heaven because having been made beloved for this particular office and call, our Lord does not permit his beloved to know corruption. Um, so you can see how these different graces are arrayed around that of the divine maternity. And the virginity, her perpetual virginity, virginal conception is yeah, protecting Jesus, the identity as son of God. What is the other significance of that? I mean, the church exalts virginity. Um, why is it so esteemed in the church and important for Mary? Yeah, I think, I mean, the, the main reason is that it shows, so, so I would say the, the reasons for which are different depending on whether you come before or after Christ. After Christ, it's the main point is identification with our Lord Jesus and then a kind of espousal to God. So there's something about it, you know, like we'll talk in religious life that religious are an eschatological sign, a sign of the end times, because in the end times, you'll neither be married nor given in marriage because the signs will have passed away and will be ushered into a, a place, a space mm -hmm. of realities. And the reality is that we're each of us made for God, not to the exclusion of others, but you only get others in God. Uh, so it's only in that union that you have the abolition of distance and the resolution of all of these nagging imperfections so that you might be yet holy and entirely the Lord's. And so that, that'd be the principal signification in the Christian dispensation 
But with Our Lady, you know, like virginity isn't really a thing in Judaism. You have some instances of it, mm -hmm. but mostly mm -hmm. vigil, uh, you know, like celibacy in the sense of like somebody would have married, you know, the husband would have passed away or the wife would have passed away and then the person wouldn't get married. Subsequently, you can think about the prophetess Anna in the temple. But this idea of consecration is kind of a new thing. Or John the Baptist. Or John the Baptist, yeah, exactly. Like the Nazarites, the idea that you would be set apart for a particular purpose. Yeah. But whether that would involve personal sanctification, I don't know. You know, like, you don't get the impression that Samson is a particularly holy man. Right. You just get the impression that he's set apart for a particular purpose. Yeah. And so Our Lady is the meeting point of Old and New Testaments, right? She's the Ark of the New Covenant. And uh, in her... You know, it, it underlines for us this fact that God is enough, uh, that God's promises are, you know, sufficient for every human flourishing or for every human fulfillment. And that might mean, you know, like certain physical or emotional or psychological deprivations, but it'll always mean fullness. Uh, and you see that fullness take flesh in her womb. You know, so like her welcoming of the, of the word, her welcoming of the Son of God, uh, shows in iconic fashion, right, in an exemplary fashion, how we are meant to welcome God. Not in that we can attain to her height of grace, but that our graces are downstream of hers. So, yeah. How do we understand, too, I know Thomas writes about this, about Mary and Joseph's marriage, that they had the fullness of marriage, and yet she's fully virgin. Without the conjugal act and that expression or that union... I know they have offspring, but what about the conjugal act part of it? Yeah, I mean, you can approach it from different perspectives. One, they're, they're not engaging in Christian marriage, mm -hmm. right? So they shouldn't be judged according to the canon law of Christian marriage, mm -hmm. for one thing. You know, like they're not baptized persons. I mean, we don't know whether or not they were baptized subsequently, but mm -hmm. they're not baptized persons. They're not held to Catholic form and matter, <laughs> um, right? So like, just like we would hold people who pertain to other Protestant ecclesial communions or pertain to other faith traditions to their form and matter, so too, you know, right. Our Lady and St. Joseph. Right. The other thing too is that um, uh, they are, you know, like so things that you already mentioned, they're open to the plans of God. And some people would suggest, you know, that like Joseph and Mary, they knew, right, how, how it would come about. They knew the extraordinary means. And so God has a kind of sovereignty that he can exercise over these, these human institutions. St. Thomas has this really cool response where he's talking about like, wait, why is it that the Israel steal all the stuff from the Egyptians and then leave the country? Like, why is stealing okay? Why does God say that? Well, in effect, all these things pertain to God, you know, so it's for God to determine their disposition. It's for God to determine their possession, right? So we don't, private property is a kind of concession. It's not something that we have in principle. That's too in the weeds. But, and then I'll talk about the, the marriage of Hosea and Gomer. Like, what the heck? She's a, she's a harlot, all right? <sighs> How is it that God can, can tell him to marry her given his, you know, knowledge that she is unfaithful and that right. would seem to pose an obstacle or an impediment to marriage? And, and St. Thomas says, I mean, it's for God to determine what marriage is because marriage is a sign of his love for the church. And as a result of which, again, he can orient it in such ways he sees fit. He asks further the question of like asking Abraham to sacrifice. I mean, like you can see all these hard passages in sacred scripture. None of them pose a stumbling. I mean, they can be difficult to interpret, but none of them are going to pose a stumbling block Sufficient for us to say, ah, well, we got to give it up. You know, it just mm -hmm. just doesn't make sense. And so, in the case of Our Lady and Saint Joseph, we, we even hold in contemporary you know canon law with respect to Christian marriage that it's still it's a it's a ratified marriage. It's just not a consummated marriage, and that's still indissoluble, mm -hmm. right? It's mm -hmm. just a difference between intrinsic and ex extrinsic indissolubility. So it's still real, right? But then the nature of their like fruitfulness, their fecundity, is determined by God in sovereign fashion. So it's not like they're a model to us um, in the form of marriage, right? Yeah. They're not necessarily a model to us in the ordinary means of conception. Right. I did a video about that, or I recorded a video about it, in which I get kind of like more particularly into St. Thomas's answer because he asks this question. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, he responds in similar fashion. Yeah. I remember a phrase I think John Paul said, but the theology of the body about, you know, it gives flesh to the vows. I think that union, conjugal union, gives flesh to the vows. That, uh, it almost like the, the reality there of making the vow, the exchange, the commitment, the bond formed. Um, you don't want to denigrate the material body part of it, but 
That's kind of the fullness there, is what you're saying. But yeah. And um, and there's there's no sacrament for religious life or virginity. It's not. And I guess what, what you said, the eschatological view of it, that it this is what it is in heaven. You know, it, it hit me recently too. It's like, I mean, you could have a beautiful marriage even, but do you really? want to be tied to this person in some special way throughout all eternity, right? I mean, like you, in the heavenly coffee shop, you wave or have coffee with the two together, you know? It's hard to imagine what that heavenly experience is going to be like. Um, How does Thomas describe heaven? Uh, In a variety of ways. Um, I'm going to intermix some of my own thoughts. So this is uh, a a paraphrase, I suppose. but with respect to that, like with respect to your spouse, um, so I don't mean for this to be insulting, but you know the martyrs are pictured in their iconography with the engines of their torture, right? They're pictured with the the wounds that they incurred during the course of this earthly life. So there's some continuity between. There's a lot of continuity between our earthly experience and our heavenly experience. And insofar as your spouse is the means of your sanctification through the sacrament of marriage. I think that you're still going to be in close relationship with that person. It just won't be as a sign of Christ's love for the church anymore Mm -hmm. because you will be immersed or like kind of consumed in Christ's love for the church. So you won't need to rely upon that sign or advert to that sign. You'll just swim in, uh, in that reality. So I think that, yeah, there'll still be some relation between spouses and obviously every, every tear will be wiped away from our eyes. There will be no death or mourning. There'll be no sorrow or pain so that the difficulties of that marital experience will be purified, cleansed, uh, but also like elevated, perfected. Um, and yet in heaven, there's still a deep kind of sociality or political um, element or nature to it. And so far as like heaven is, you're, you're, you're before the most high God, right? You, you behold him face to face and that is sufficient for all manner of sweetness, but you're still there as part of the church. You know, that is to say as part of the church triumphant, and so you're still in relation. You're still the son or daughter of this person. You're still the father or mother of that person. You're still related by bonds of fellowship to those with whom you walked on this earth or to whom you addressed your prayers for intercession or whatever else. Um, but, but like, how is it that St. Thomas describes it as a kind of overflow? It's like the joy that you experience overflows the bounds of your soul and you know, flows into the souls of others. And so it has the kind of savor, as it were, both of your contribution, of his or her contribution, of your corporate effort as the church to recognize and receive the grace of God. So um, how exactly that looks, you know, it's it's tough to say, especially before the, the general resurrection, before you get your body back, but yeah, something yeah, like that. Yeah. And speaking about Our Lady and her Immaculate Conception, what did Thomas teach about that? Yeah, so that's controverted or that's contested. Um, some people will say that he argued against it. Other people will say, will say that he did only for a time during his career, but that in like early periods and late periods, he defended something like it. The basic idea what, tra- what Thomas is trying to argue for at various points is the universality of salvation. So if it is the case that our Lord Jesus Christ is the unique mediator of salvation, then no one is excluded from that offer at the very least, even if they exclude themselves by rejecting it. Um, And so if Our Lady did not incur original sin, is his point, then perhaps that would exclude her from the dispensation of salvation, thus making Christ the savior of all but one, which would be a strange arrangement. And so it's with other theologians in the tradition that you have this kind of solution that Our Lady participates not um, like weakly in the redemption, but strongly in the redemption, that she is preserved from sin, not having incurred it, uh, and therefore not having been uh, pardoned it, you know, is, is actually an intense expression or, or a more perfect expression of the redemption. That's like the kind of link piece, or that's the key that needs to come to the surface. Yeah, pre-redeemed in a more exultant way, or yeah, so you hear those kind of phrases and stuff. Yeah, preserved, not liberated is what you'll often hear. Preserved, yeah. And... And then her participation at Calvary, like the co-redemptrix, did he write about that? Uh, Some, yeah. Um, And certainly the Thomistic tradition has expanded on that. But the basic idea is that whatever our Lord merits in strict justice, 
Our Lady kind of merits by a sharing in or by a kind of friendship with Our Lord's offering. Um, so you'll make a distinction in the tradition, St. Thomas does, between condign merit and congruous merit. So like just merit as it were and then fitting merit. And um, there's a sense in which we're, we're kind of limited in how we apply condign merit because we want to do so with a certain stricture. Um, and so our Lord merits the salvation of the whole world. But we can also be the protagonist of a certain condign merit. That is to say, like we can merit our own salvation by the grace of Christ, right? But by charitable acts, we merit salvation. Um, but then there are other things that you can't merit that way, you know, but that you can kind of contribute to with a sort of friendship and grace, with a sort of uh, fellowship. And that's what Our Lady does in the offering of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he chooses to associate her in the redemption, not because there's anything lacking to it, but because he wants it to also kind of pass through her. So he took human flesh in her womb. And so her womb is that place in which the Son of God is formed. And our Lord ensures that that, that holds for the rest of salvation history. So like if we are to be formed after the pattern of Christ, you know, we go to Our Lady and we kind of cast ourselves on her. And so that, that his merits pass through her as a kind of indication of this plan or an indication of now the trajectory of the life of grace that it goes through our Lord Jesus Christ and that he extends it to those whom he loves most in peculiar fashion. So like her condign merit, would that be a difference in kind from our condign merit? It, and that merit is coming right from the Holy Spirit working in us, right? That that's how we can condignly merit injustice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I wouldn't say there's there's no difference in kind between hers and ours. Okay. I wouldn't even say there's a difference in kind between his and ours, because hmm. um, it's just it's just merit. So merit, the way that merit works is there's a divine preordination. God says if you do these grace acts, you get a reward. Mm -hmm. So it's God has to set up the terms because there's nothing like about the acts themselves which say, this absolutely gets that. No, it, right. it's by God's arrangement. Uh -huh. But then God gives the grace. The grace brings with it the charity. The charity informs the act, and the act posited, you know, merits the reward. But that's, that holds for all who subsist in a human nature. The source of grace is different. So like Christ's grace radiates from his Godhead. So the grace of union is that most basic grace. Mm -hmm insofar as it's a grace that his human nature be united to his divine person. But from that grace of union, there flows a habitual grace. Um, and we would say that it's habitual grace of the head of the body. And we, as partaking, you know, as members of the body, uh, we share in that habitual grace because seen from another vantage, it's what we call capital grace or the grace of headship. So the source in him is his union, you know, like the union of his human nature with his divine person. The source in us is his habitual grace extended to us in the context of the body of Christ, right? So as members of the head, can as members of the body. Can you say that one more time, that last thing you said? <laughs> yeah, so basically three graces in Christ. Yeah. Grace of union, habitual grace, and capital grace, or what we call the, the grace of headship. Yeah. And in Christ, his habitual grace comes from the grace of union. It radiates from the grace of union, mm -hmm. filling every nook and cranny of his human nature. In our case, Grace comes to us remotely from that grace of union, but proximately from his habitual grace, because his habitual grace seen from another vantage is just capital grace, mm. because the habitual grace of the head is also the grace of the body. So insofar as we're incorporated into the body, we partake of his grace, mm. which is why all grace is the grace of Christ. Mm. And speaking about Our Lady and you know, your experience of this deep kind of family conversion through her and Medjugorje, how has how has that been part of your religious life in a particular way? Yeah, um, different ways at different times. Uh, so it's, I mean, it's part of the habit. It's baked into the life, mm -hmm. um, not just the physical habit that we wear, which has a huge scapular, but also the habit of being. So we recite the rosary together as a community in some houses, or you have the option of reciting it individually but you recite the rosary as a Dominican. And then there are various Marian prayers, which are part of the liturgical life. Uh, so like, for instance, we sing the Salve Regina at the end of Compline, according to the, the propers you know, of our tradition. Uh, and there are pious stories associated with that practice that like 
the early friars, there was one who was troubled by demonic mischief, basically, and to be delivered from that demonic mischief, the brothers sang the Salve Regina, and then he was delivered, and one of the brothers had a vision of Our Lady imploring Our Lord whilst they were singing that hymn, that or that antiphon, specifically at the words, Ea Ergo, that she prostrated herself before the Lord in prayer and supplication. And so there are a lot of these stories that kind of circulate through the Dominican tradition, which kind of keep us grounded in a Marian life. There's another one where uh, St. Dominic is said to have had a vision of heaven, and he didn't see any Dominicans there, and he was troubled. And so he asked the Lord, why is that the case? And our Lord said, Can, you know, like, ask Our Lady. And so he went to Our Lady, and then she opened her mantle, and the Dominicans were all gathered at her feet as a kind of sign of, you know, like, intimacy or as a sign of a special care. Mm-hmm. So we have, you know, like the Franciscans have the Fioretti, the Little Flowers of St. Francis. We have what's called the, the Vitae Fratrum, or the Lives of the Brethren. The first couple stories in that are stories where it's revealed to a person that the Dominicans were founded at the direct request of Our Lady. Like Our Lady asked Our Lord for the Dominicans and she got them. Um, so that's, yeah, that's just part of our life. And it comes, comes out in various expressions, but preaching the rosary has always been a huge part of the Dominican charism and Dominican life, which is why it's cool that we just started this uh, annual Dominican rosary pilgrimage. And we just had the first one in Washington, D.C., couple weekends ago and uh it was it was great there were a lot of people there and it was it was beautiful and what happens in the pilgrimage are y'all walking somewhere or how's so it's effectively like a day of recollection so it's it's kind of hard to walk when you have thousands of people yeah. uh, but we were at the basilica the national shrine of the immaculate conception and it was kind of like a day of recollection so we had i gave a uh, a conference at 10 a.m or a talk at 10 a.m and then we had three hours of adoration with confessions available and then people could take their lunch break and all like book signing and stuff like that from 11 to 2. And then at 2, I preached another conference. And then we had, we said 15 decades of the rosary. And the brothers processed around the church, but the people remained in their place. And then um, the general promoter for the rosary gave a little fervorino. And then we had a vigil mass. So, yeah, it was like a, like a day of recollection. 15 decades or... 20 decades. We said 15. So there's like, we're not against the mysteries of light, um, but there's this typical or kind of traditional association of the 150 Hail Marys with the 150 Psalms okay. that the, the rosary is the Psalter of Our Lady. And that's yeah. kind of how it developed in religious life as a way for the uneducated brothers to participate in the liturgical life of the house, even if they couldn't read Latin. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, we, we thought that we'd just kind of retain that connection. Do you find like your devotion to Our Lady, her presence in your life is, sometimes, I mean, all the theology might get kind of dry or kind of, uh, uh, what's the word? Uh, like, does she soften that? Does yeah. she kind of humanize it more? I think so. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, she gave flesh to our Lord. Yeah. I think she can give flesh to, to us in our Christian lives. Yeah, I, I mean, like, there are dry times and there are less dry times. They're all basically dry, but... Um, <laughs> If we're, if we're being honest. But, um, yeah, there's a kind of, like, peculiar maternal care that Our Lady exercises. There are times in your life, you know, like when you find yourself crying inexplicably, you're like, what is going on right now? You're like, oh, I've become so moody. Um, but I associate, like, I associate tears with a Marian grace. I associate a certain comfort, you know, like when you feel yourself out on a limb and exposed and kind of made vulnerable by circumstances, when you kind of come back home, and are received warmly. Uh, I associate that with like a kind of Marian grace as well. So yeah, different kind of notes in the religious life which bring out the Marian dimension. But yeah, I I pray this prayer to Our Lady when I remember to. The aspiration is to pray it every day, but one written by Léonce de Grande Maison. And um, it ends with this invocation where you ask that uh, you be given a heart tormented by the glory of Christ with a wound that won't heal until heaven. And I think that like, there's something about a maternal grace too, which kind of pulls out of you your vocation, which kind of makes you capable of things that you didn't know you were capable of because it's, you know, like she sees it in you Mm -hmm. and she calls it forth from you. So yeah, I pray for that as well. I was, we, um, Ailey Begaza, just forget her, Immaculate. Immaculate. Yeah, she was just here and, uh, and my, I was doing a podcast with her, and my machine went out. I lost the whole thing, but our uh, podcast recorder. And she was talking about Our Lady Cabejo, and there was a priest that was really doubting the children and what they were saying. And so um, I think Our Lady, 
asked him to pray the rosary. I guess he wasn't doing it every day. And one of the young girls, the visionaries, was didn't want to go to him, was scared to death of him, but went and just kind of abruptly said, Our Lady wants you to pray the rosary every day. <laughs> I think even with like hands extended kind of thing, penitentially. And, and he does this, I, th- I don't know if it was just once or maybe, I don't know, more than that, but, and then he, he put the rosary, left the rosary on his desk under some papers. And then Our Lady sent the visionary back and said, you know, basically like, don't leave it under these papers. She, at first she said, thank you for praying the rosary. And she said, you know, don't leave it, just basically start praying again, you know, continuously. And, uh, and so he, he became converted, you know, became one of the big supporters of the apparitions and the children and everything. But it struck me such a powerful, because he was said, how does she know it's under these papers, right? That this must be a true revelation, you know, convinced. And, but, you know, I guess what struck me too is that she thanked him. Mm-hmm. You know, it seems so maternal, you know, just uh, thank you. And it's like, to me, it was like moving. It's like, I mean, Our Lady sees everything. She sees all our efforts, all our attempts, and oftentimes in failure, in struggle, difficulty, whatever. But she... Uh, it's like she's hungry or whatever. She she recognizes it and she encourages and nurtures that in us. You know, I just thought that was so beautiful. I just feel like kind of need that in our life. You know, you need that that motherly kind of tenderness of the church. I was talking to this uh, contemplative religious superior, and she got to. I mean, after years of living the life, fidelity, she was called to Rome to do participate in something. And I said, well, tell me your impressions, the contemplative nun, you know, of, of Rome. And she said, when she first saw the, the colonnade, she said the first thing she thought was uh, I, the church as a mother. I've looked at the colonnade many times. I never thought of that. <laughs> you know? She just keyed in on that motherly aspect. And I, I think Our Lady is so important to put that face you know, express that ecclesial Marian motherly mystery of the church, that not to lose sight of the church's mother. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's such a kind of a hard, fast world, and uh, we need that. Um, let me ask you, like, you studied in, in Switzerland at Freiburg, and describe that whole experience. <laughs> I'm fascinated with that. Like, yeah. Do you guys, like, ski into some seminary or something? Yeah, right. <laughs> Um, so I went in October of 2020 and then I got back in June of 2023. So I was there for about three years and, um, yeah, what can I say? Switzerland's beautiful. It's really beautiful. It's expensive. Uh, the mountains are free. Thanks be to God. Um, but I experienced, yeah, many different things. Um, I, I, I seized the opportunity to hike a lot because I received counsel early on not to work on my project, you know, not to work on my dissertation on the weekends because it kind of threatens to consume you and destroy you. So just be really solicitous and careful to guard your, your work week and use that time well, but then don't work on the weekends. So I went hiking most Saturdays and then said some masses and gave some talks and heard some confessions most Sundays. Um, and then, then did like a little bit with, with a couple of retreats or like a couple of days of recollection or a couple of pilgrimages here and there. Um, but yeah, I mean, the country is beautiful and there's something about that beauty which is healing um, and which is ennobling. Uh, but it's also kind of like dreadful, you know, it's kind of numinous. Like the mountains do not care whether you live or die. And uh, there's something about that that's a little scary, a little unsettling. And I got myself in a lot of bad situations, hiking, where, uh, especially with snow, snowshoes. Yeah, so that was nerve wracking at times, but, but ultimately delightful. And then just to get to know the church there, you know, people know some things about the church in Germany and some of the struggles that it's having at present. A lot of those same struggles are present in Switzerland, which can be discouraging, um, dispiriting really if you pay attention to them. But uh, what I often enough found myself kind of in contact with was the young church, you know, just like young people who just wanted sacraments, you know, they just wanted you to celebrate the sacraments with a modicum of respect and preach and teach with a modicum of competence and they were over the moon. Mm-hmm. So I just got involved with a lot of different small groups of like charismatic group here and then like a kind of internship in theological anthropology over here. And then people associate like young people associated with the Dominican order here 
And then, you know, blah, blah, blah. But just, I came to know a bunch of different people in a bunch of different places. Such that by the end, I felt like I kind of knew the young Swiss church. I mean, it's not a big country. There's 8 million people there. And I can't imagine that more than 400,000 people practice the faith. Mm. Tops. Yeah. Um, that's probably too big a number. But I, I, I kind of felt like I had gotten, I gotten to know the Swiss church. And, um, and is it very varied with the different cantons? You have different languages even, right? Yeah, so 26 different cantons, and there are uh, four different languages, four different principal languages. So French, I was living in the French-speaking part, but the canton where I lived was French and German-speaking. Uh-huh. Most, of, most of Switzerland speaks German, but it's a particular Swiss-German. Mm-hmm. And then there's one canton that speaks Italian, and then there's one canton in which a couple of valleys, they speak uh, Romanche, which is its own beast. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was another cool thing. Like to be challenged socially and culturally and linguistically on a daily basis to try to grow, to try to learn, to try to acquire was really cool. And I, I kind of miss the struggle of that, truth be told, because it's kind of easy to just live life in English in your own culture with, yeah, just the presumption of understanding. Um, now, mind you, parts of that were hard and exhausting, but yeah, I, I miss I miss being there. Um, if I were told tomorrow that I was to be assigned back there, to, I'd... I'd be pumped, but I'm how, not going to be. <laughs> how big is the school there? University of Freiburg, there yeah. might be, I don't know, 10, 12,000 students, okay. undergrad and grad, but the theology faculty, there might be, I don't know, 80, 90, 100 people writing a dissertation there. So it's uh-huh. big. In the French speaking world, it's one of the three, I suppose, most significant centers of theological study. Mm-hmm. And you found it a great place to study theology? I just yeah. I just wrote a dissertation. That's all I did. So I was mostly yeah. in my room reading books, taking notes, making outlines, formulating oh. my points, and then writing away. Oh. So, so I didn't have a single class. Oh, so your coursework was the Angelica then? My coursework was in Washington, D.C. at the House of Studies. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Oh, wow. And um, I wanted to ask you, too, about... Like you offered the traditional Latin mass. Is that something that's real important to you? And why is that? What do you love about that? Yeah, so I'm a Dominican. We have our own rite. Um, so within the Roman rite, you have different local and then different, um, I don't know what you would call them, but like religious order expressions of the Roman rite. Um, so what, you got like the Benedictines and the Norbertines and the Carmelites and the Carthusians and the Dominicans each, I think, still retain their right. So our right was codified in, you know, like the 1260s, basically. It's a kind of combo of Roman and Gallican elements uh, with Dominican emphases and stresses. So I like it as, a, as an expression of our tradition, you know, our theological tradition, but also our, more broadly speaking, kind of like cultural tradition. And uh, I, I mean, like I prefer to celebrate Mass in the old right. Uh, especially, you know, like when I celebrate a private mass, because it's got there's a certain like ritual richness to it. You kind of feel as you go up to the altar of God uh, in your body, but with like genuflections and signs of the cross and kisses and various things. Like you feel the sacrifice which you are called upon to make, um, and then yeah, I don't know. It just it just requires more in the way of attention and intention i think sometimes that's not to say it's like well whatever i'll just leave it at that and i'd like to ask you about preaching and your confessional work how long have you been ordained seven years seven years Uh, how do you approach confession and what is your like my practice of it yeah well no like when you hear confessions yeah um so my kind of disposition is that the sacrament saves people so it's not my responsibility to say the perfect word. It's not my responsibility to give comprehensive counsel. It's not my responsibility really to do anything except for give them absolution mm-hmm. um, and help them to formulate their contrition and make adequate confession. So if somebody is overly vague or if somebody's saying things which aren't pertinent, it's my responsibility to gently, non-traumatically guide yeah. them. Um, so I want to establish what the sins are and their sufficient specificity, you know, kind of number. And then I also want to get people to focus on the right thing. So if they start being overly narrative, like this happened and then this happened and this happened, you need to know this because it's like, I just try to tell people like, I don't need to know that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not it's not important for the mm-hmm. sacrament. I can see how that's important in other settings, but not for this one. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that people feel like they, they, that you need to understand everything about it or people feel like you need to sympathize with it. It's like, I don't need to sympathize with anything. Mm-hmm. I just need to give you God's mm-hmm. gift. Um, 
And so, yeah, and then with contrition, I think sometimes people are trying to overcome shame. Like with sexual sins, they'll be like, yeah, I committed sins of impurity. So it's the priest's responsibility to say like, okay, sins of impurity in thought or in word or in action. Mm -hmm. In action, okay, was that with someone else or was that with yourself, with myself, okay. Um, was that with or without pornography? With, okay, was that once, twice, three times? That was like probably every day. You know, so just like to try to help people to confront it in as gentle a way as you can. Yeah. So that way, in illumining their conscience, they would thereby be open to the grace which God dispenses. So, yeah. I guess just as a confessor myself, uh, do you go into, like, I remember being taught in seminary, like what kind of if there's a perversion, a circumstance yeah, yeah. there, you know, that, that need to be confessed as well? Or I'd, I'd say like more and more in the last, you know, 10, 15, 20 years mm -hmm. as the, the, the cultural, as the culture indulges in aberrant sexual expression. Yeah. Um, if I have reason to suspect that it might be same sex, that's the mm -hmm. first question that I ask yeah. about, um, you know, like pornography mm -hmm. or if it's, you know, like sexual action with another person. Uh, but if I don't have reason to think that, there's no sufficient reason to think that, I don't ask about that because it can be insulting. Right. Or at least people can be insulted by right. that. And I just don't think that, I don't think that that's, they'll have right. presented that if they, right. if they uh, were conscious of I it. I know that's a tough thing to weigh too, is like they might not be fully aware of how to confess and everything. And you don't want to, um, you want to be gentle, I yeah. guess. Yeah. Yeah, 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 gentle but firm. Yeah. And preaching, I mean, there's a, you all are the order of preachers and you have an army of Dominicans now doing so many good works. <laughs> you have the theology to be good preachers behind you. I mean, I like that style of preaching. I remember Father Milady, his visits here, I always loved his preaching and it was, you just feel like you walked away with something substantive, you know, and, you know, not everybody is in the pew is, is geared that way. Um, but I certainly am. I like to hear that. But uh, how do you approach preaching? Yeah, I guess my basic thought is St. Thomas describes four modes of preaching. The fourth and final mode of preaching is what some have called holy preaching, which pertains by right to the bishops, but which Dominicans perhaps presumptuously think they have a share in. Mm -hmm. um, and in this type of preaching, you're giving people the mysteries, right? Uh, so a kind of what a kind of like immersion in the mysteries or the mysteries as nourishment mm -hmm. and then also instruction but not just instruction a kind of tutelage in christian perfection effectively what i think that comes down to is like you're supposed to give people god not just like tidbits that you learned about god yeah. or like tips and tricks for coming to the knowledge of god like you can give people god yeah. and i think that uh, faith discourse has that capacity to be instrumentalized Right, so that God can use it to reveal himself and to give himself. And I think that as a, you know, as a preacher, that requires of you preparation. I, I lean very heavily on remote preparation. Like, I think your whole life has to be a life of prayer and study. And then some proximate preparation as concerns the gospel of the day or whatever else. And then, like, the, the rhetorical shaping of it is also important. Like, that it be that you have the right pathos and ethos to float the logos because otherwise it's just like a, a doctrinal download right which i don't think that people always appreciate but you got to be able to give them the goods you know and the only goods that really matter are god yeah. and uh, i think that the preaching can bear that weight provided that it's done well and you're writing i was reading your book on prudence and and i, I thought you really kind of the first intro part of the book you tapped into kind of real struggles of modernity you know not not some disconnected intellectual, but uh, I thought you were connecting to people's lived experiences. Um, how do you characterize modernity? What are like Americans struggling with? And maybe like kind of younger side of things, you know, they're working, they're getting married and having families. What are some of the struggles you see? And even like the twisted thinking that we have as Americans. Yeah, I mean, I don't know them all, obviously, but <laughs> my, my typical go-to trifecta is sad, lonely, and anxious. I think that a lot of people are sad, that they feel disappointed, or they feel, what? Yeah, maybe disappointed is a word, or they feel, like, aggressed by life or traumatized by life, and that's tough for them. 
And then lonely, like, I think that a lot of people, even if they're making an effort at sharing their lives, they uh, only are able to do so with limited success because there's, yeah, like people don't don't actually know how to share their lives. They're like, they, they feel the angst just kind of wash over them, but then they get together and then they pull their phones out and everyone's looking at his or her own screen. Like they, they're not they're not willing to be vulnerable or genuinely open to human communion, the type of human communion which places demands, which requires commitment, um, but which could save them from their isolation. And then anxious. I think like there's always a task to be done. There's always an email to be checked. There's always a situation to be managed. And we don't necessarily know how to rest. We don't necessarily know how to play. We don't necessarily know like how to spare ourselves the distraction and dispersion which threatens to swallow us. Um, and I think that a lot of that, we can begin to address a lot of that by, by life of prayer. Um, you know, like insofar as you're willing to invest in your faith, you have the key to unlocking so many of life's what, riddles. Um, but, but yeah, I don't know. People, people seem less and less willing to do that, which is sad, but yeah, it's, I mean, in every age of the church, there's been spiritual poverty, you know, so we shouldn't be scandalized by it or think for a second like it's it's a novel situation. <laughs> and it seems like in our culture today, you know, we can be so exhibitionist with everything in our lives, you know, in our celebrity culture, talk shows, everybody talks about all this kind of stuff. Yet, you know, you're seeing that a lack of willingness to be vulnerable one-on-one. Yeah. You wouldn't expect it in our culture, would you? Because no. it's like, we got a celebrity culture that's out there doing it for us, you know, that every kind of problem you could have in life, you know, is splashed on the front pages and stuff. But, um, but prayer helps us to have that vulnerability. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, at the end of the day, I think everyone wants to share his life or her life with someone else who will hold it precious, who will hold it close. Yeah. And there's a kind of fear that if you give yourself away that, your life will slip like water through the cracks of another's fingers because they won't actually treasure it. And in prayer, you pour yourself into God, and God, even if he doesn't necessarily speak back in a way that you can understand at first or even hear at all, um, still he treasures your life, and you know that because that's been revealed. Otherwise, you wouldn't exist. Um, and beyond existence, we get grace. You know, We get uh, a participation in the divine life itself, which saves us from the threat or saves us from the fear of irrelevance or unimportance or utter meaninglessness. And so I think that like, yeah, if, if your life is gonna mean something, it's gotta mean something to someone, mm -hmm. first to God, and then you know your family and your friends and those with whom you're called to live your life. I was talking to somebody recently and it was just like, the, the point of the conversation was simply to say like, it doesn't matter too terribly much what you do, except insofar as what you do is an expression of who you are. Uh, but if you're, what you do begins to occlude or begins to crowd out who you are, if you're always exhausted and drained and yeah i don't know threatened by further commitment then and what is that what is that for what does that amount to you know you just you end up giving people nothing because you don't hold yourself i mean you don't possess yourself you've you've slipped through your own fingers yeah like you said mentioned we've forgotten how to rest and play talk more about that how, how do we rest and play or should we or I'm not a good one to consult on this because <laughs> I'm just like a raging hypocrite. Um, I also don't have that many interests. I don't know that I've been balanced since I came home from Switzerland, so that's been a few months. But like for me, hiking was that in a big way. It's just like I run really hot. Just mentally, I, I, I just tend to drive kind of anxiously towards whatever goal I have in mind. And um, hiking was great because I could just sublimate that. I could just send it in another direction. That direction was up a mountain. <laughs> Um, and so like for me, hiking wise, I would always just go as fast as I could, not because I like wasn't taking in the sights, but because I was just like burning off all of this mental unrest mm -hmm. and just kind of sending it in a, in a hard direction. Like there's something about being challenged or something about being, I don't know, confronted with an obstacle, which I think I, I find quite delightful. Um, but also like, I like literature. Um, so I like reading novels and short stories, especially those that, that have, yeah, stood the test of time. Um, and there's something humanizing about that because I think that they kind of transfigure your human experience and then give you your humanity back. Um, 
it's not just like a you identify with the protagonist and you think, oh, that could have happened to me or thus and such could have gone that way. But it's like you see a human situation spun out and kind of condensed and then represented in a way that you can enter into. And it, and it affords you, yeah, just like the opportunity, not, not to like broaden your horizons in a silly way, but it, it gives you more of life. Um, and I think that that's what we want. Like we want more of life. Um, it helps us like to interpret our life, right? You see a character that ever experiencing this and makes you think about it or reflect, you know, and I know I find myself, I guess like in movies, like, you know, I certainly enjoy comedies or something, but, but too, just, I like the ones that move me, that grab me. There's some kind of real interaction between these two actors, you know, and they, it might even be just dramatic pauses or something, but I, I sometimes wonder, so why is that capturing me so much? You know, but something about uh, just working stuff out or just confronting each other with their lives and um, I guess breaking out of the isolation. There's some connection, you know, we see in literature or movies. To me, that's moving. Yeah, yeah. Whether as present or as absent, you know, is like a kind of reminder that it can be present when you witness how tragic it is when it's absent, that human connection, you know. Yeah. I'm thinking of like a... I read a book by William James, a portrait of a whatever, a young lady or something like that. I've forgotten the name of it. Um, but like this woman's inability to connect with any of the men who could have been her suitor, or could have been her lover, or could have been her husband, and one who eventually is, but then from whom she's alienated and isolated. Isabel Archer is the name of the protagonist, whatever that book is. Um, but it's in a collected volume with Vanity Fair, which, nope. No, it's in a collected volume with Washington Square. Vanity Fair is by William McBeast Thackeray. That's different. Um, yeah, but like that, like the fact that she can't connect, it like wounds you, you know. But I think in wounding you, it opens you up to the prospect that you can connect, even if it means a kind of suffering. I don't know exactly how to express that, but yeah, literature. And I've heard you mention you like David Foster Wallace. Yeah, that, and I haven't read any of his stuff, but what draws you to that? So he's a thoroughly postmodern Millie. Um, but he has this kind of unaddressed desire to connect, you know, mm -hmm. so uh, some people call it the new sincerity where he's not just ironizing everything away or speaking cynically or speaking um, detachedly mm -hmm. about our, our modern or postmodern condition. It's like within it, he wants to affirm something like he wants to get to the human things concerned, even if his ultimate judgment is that like, wow, that's that's tough or like, wow, that's messed up. And I can't necessarily do anything with that. You know, he's not going to go in for overly facile responses and say, like, we can all be together and it'll be great, you know, because mm -hmm. it's actually hard to be together if everyone involved doesn't have the formation or doesn't mm -hmm. have the virtues to be together because they just can't, you know, like right. they can't bear the weight of that interaction because it's just too demanding, right? It's just too oppressing for them. Yeah. But he like he wants that and you can see yeah. that he wants that. Uh, so he writes essays and short stories and he has three novels, one of which was published posthumously and incompletely but yeah i some of the stuff it's just like it hits hard but yeah i really like him a lot and you're a good writer um tell us about writing is that something that gets you excited or no, not really <laughs> writing is just pain it's just pain and suffering yeah so there's, do you rewrite a lot or does it just yeah. flow out of you no i rewrite a lot oh. yeah and i think part part of it is made difficult by word processing because yeah computer is just not a it's just not a helpful instrument in many ways because it's potentially anything like both the program itself you can always revise you know, like you're never committing to a word mm -hmm. in the same way that you did formally but also like you know you can pull up the internet to use the thesaurus but then also check the score of the baseball game from the <laughs> night before and stuff it's just like not just at the level of distraction it's just uh -huh. the, the tool is too amorphous and it becomes harder and harder to wield i think as it becomes more and more amorphous but yeah write, writing for me is just pain but eventually after you know 25 revisions i get aboard to to sound like mm -hmm. i want it to sound so you you do go over it right and want it to sound and flow a certain way yeah and, it's know. important to me that words sound good yeah. because words are supposed to be beautiful like yeah. the sonic quality of the words ought to commend the concept the conceptual content of it like words should they should thwap and they should ring and they should sound wonderful you know mm -hmm. i i think that um, and I feel like, yeah, it's a disservice to our language when we permit it to come to pieces in our own hands. 
Does that come from your background somewhat, or your parents' literary? What did they do? My mom's a snoot, uh, uh-huh. would be the technical term, somebody who cares a lot about the language and its use. So if we asked her, like, can I do this? She'd say, I don't know. Can you? You know? I'd be like, may I do this? She's like, you may. Um, so, yeah, we were, we were raised with a certain attentiveness to language, but also uh, having to learn other languages for pastoral work and then for academic, academic work as well. That's also kind of like sensitized me more to the beauty of language. Because there's something about a language, the way that it opens a culture, the way that it opens interactions um, that formerly did not lie open to you. It's just, and it's not like it always goes well, um, but it's cool. I was up, I made a retreat up at Madonna House and they had a, a young member there who born and raised in Mexico and, and she joined. The, so she had to really learn she learned English in her teenage years and joined the house. But I, because they have a pretty austere diet. And I said, what do you, do you really miss your food from your from Mexico? And she said, she said, more than that, this blew me away. I mean, food is like way up there. But it's like, she said, more than that, it's language. She mm-hmm. said in Spanish, she felt like she could express her heart or feelings, emotions better in Spanish than English. And her English was perfect. But, yeah. uh, I was struck by that, how she she really lamented that loss. But um, how do you, I know I've heard you speak about it like on different podcasts, we'll wrap it up here soon, is, but how do you moderate, like in terms of like rest, recreation, the use of media, there's obviously so much bad stuff there and, and I mean, like you find like some good stuff, like in terms of movies, but there's a lot of bad stuff in the movie, but how do you moderate that or look at that? Yeah, I don't know, again, that I'm a, a good person to consult on this. I take a walk. I mean, so we have Compline early at the house where I'm assigned, so we're done Compline by like 6.45 p.m. And I take a walk. And like being outside, having some sun, moving around, I think that's helpful to create a little space. And then ideally, I don't work again after 7.30 p.m. Now, mind you, a lot of nights I do work until like 9.30 or 10, which is probably stupid, which is certainly stupid, but regardless, I tell myself that it needs to get done. But for me, it's like I, so I try to build in little pauses during the day for recollection, to read sacred scripture, um, to kind of like work on formation rather than on the, the task that is immediately present to me. And then in the evening, I try to gradually distance I'd like a lot of struggles with anxiety in past years, which manifested as insomnia. So I kind of, I'd like gotten into the habit of ritualizing the end of the day. So that way it would be less, uh, it could derail me less often or less terribly. Um, and I think part of that is like distancing from screens at the, at the end of the day and at the beginning of the day. And then like distancing from the intensity of both like work and movement and trying to like settle in. And what, I'm, what I've found is that I'm just too tired really. Uh, to do much of anything at the end of the day. <laughs> if I let myself feel my fatigue, I fall asleep at like 8.30, wow. which is, you know, yeah. but I don't let myself feel the fatigue too terribly often. So I think ideally, literature in the evenings, you know, I, I try to stay away from movies at this point, um, just like it's a kind of intense time in my life. And if yeah. I'm watching a movie, I'm not resting. I'm just, yeah. I'm just, I'm holding on. Right. Um, but yeah, for me, like literature, and then you can always spend time with the brothers. I, the, the, the house in which I live is, it's a really good house. It's a really edifying house with like a lot of good conversations to be had. And we'll often sit out on the deck, um, like drink a beer and smoke a cigar or something like that in the evening, which is nice. It's actually what I'm going to do when I get back tonight. So, <laughs> last question. Like they say in golf, Deacon Bill used to be here as CEO. He used to be a, used to play golf in his younger years, but he'd say that you'd always make one shot that keeps you coming back. You know, it keeps you playing the game. <laughs> Is there something that excites you about being a Dominican friar that maybe on a natural level, but it's like you really enjoy? Yeah, this will sound morbid death. Um, <laughs> I'm excited to die. Um, because, yeah, not, again, not in a morbid way. They say it's, it's good to, to live a Franciscan and to die a Dominican. And they, I mean, like three people have said that. But uh, we're, we're typically really good to our dead. Uh, like we pray for them. We continue to offer suffrages for them. We commemorate them on a yearly basis. You know, it's just like we try to stay really close to the dead. Um, and I, you know, like I think a lot of people fall into the habit of thinking that they're here on this earth for some use, which 
I just don't think that's true. Like God doesn't need us and God can do everything that he wants to do directly and without intermediaries. Like we're here for glory, you know, to tell forth the glory of God, but to experience it in our members, to participate in his saving work. But like, I'm, I'm happy to do that for a time, but the glory will be so much thicker beyond this life. And I want to live this life in a way that's consistent with or continuous with the life that is to come. But I, you know, like, I mean, if it comes, if it comes to it, I'm sure that I will balk at the opportunity to go before the Lord because I'll be eminently conscious of my own imperfections. But at this point, like, I just kind of want to die. Like, I, there's, there's like, here on this earth, is there a further thing that I need to get written or a further thing that I need to, that I need to preach? It's like, no. Do I think that I can be of some service for the next however many years? Sure. Am I completely content to do that? Absolutely. Am I excited at the prospect of that? Not really. You know, it's just like, <laughs> I'm really looking forward to dying. Um, That's I, the New Yorker in you, Kevin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just hope that I can die well. I remember Father Grishel told us a story. I think it was Frank Sheen. He's like coming to the end of his life and somebody said, do you wish you could just do it all over again? He goes, no, why would I want to do it all over again? Yeah. Father Gregory Pine, thank you so much. I know you're extremely busy coming down to the network and doing these shows, so thank you. Yeah, my joy. Thanks for having me.